Yes, Father, with this song and with this prayer, we confess your absolute total authority, sovereignty, the fact that you are the creator and the sustainer of this entire universe, that Christ, by the word of his power, holds all things together, that by his word in the beginning, you spoke and it was so, and all the created realm, all the material cosmos came into being. The fact that the plan of salvation was agreed to by the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, before time began and eternity passed, covenanted together to accomplish the mighty miracle of salvation. And then as we have witnessed in the scriptures and even its effects in our own life, as history unfolds in your perfect time, the fullness of time, in fact, Christ was born of a woman, came, died, bore the wrath of God on our behalf, lived a perfect sinless life, and upon his death secure the payment of our sins. Our hope for resurrection was sealed when he broke forth from that grave in three short days. And our hope in his rule, continuing in his ever-present intercession for his church, was secured on the day of his ascension into glory. And so it is the name of Jesus Christ that compels us to gather today. He has ransomed us from our sin. We thank you, Lord, for these truths. It is the name of Jesus Christ that is worthy of our attention as we look to the Holy Word and see wherein our salvation lies. And so we thank you for the way of life laid out in your holy word. And it is the name of Jesus Christ that is worthy of all the praise and glory, not just of the confession of this small group here, but indeed every tongue and every knee that has been born ought to confess Christ as Lord. So I pray that you would give us grace, Father, as a consequence of the means of this message and this service to bring the message of Christ alone salvation to those you call us to reach in our lives, in our homes, and our families and on into the world. And through the few in number, and as, however frail and ill-equipped they may seem to the world, I pray that the testimony of your church would nevertheless shine brightly in darkness, proclaiming that Christ is Lord, and in him is salvation and hope for not just tomorrow, but our eternal life. We thank you for these things. As we turn to your word, I pray that the Spirit would open our heart to value and to understand and to proclaim the truths there contained. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, what an incredible honor and privilege that Christ paid for with his own blood that we gather in his presence and open up his scriptures today. Let us be mindful of that as we do so by turning first, if you will, with me to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Our primary text this morning, in a moment we'll turn there as well, is Romans chapter 4, 1 through 12. But I'd like to introduce this message by reminding us of a passage of Scripture we, we covered two weeks ago, and then give ourselves, and then glean from that several pertinent applications for our world today. Two weeks ago, in our communion service, we were focusing our attention on 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25, a powerful passage of Scripture which adds means whereby elect exiles can survive times of difficulty in the in-between. Said, uh, said another way, how do we survive as elect exiles, as Peter calls us? Well, we do so by having, among other things, verse 13, our Minds prepared for action, being sober-minded, with their hope fully set on the grace that would be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
we are prepared as obedient children, not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, which Peter in the words of Isaiah later refers to as the flesh, but instead we place Christ in his holiness and the the perfections of the Lord before us and therefore seek to be holy in all our conduct as he is holy and so forth. We understand, according to 1 Peter, that we need not fear our time here in exile if we fear the Lord, knowing that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things, not with weak and destructive and corruptible things, like those inherited from our forefathers, another good phrase referring to the things of the flesh, but rather with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then we read further in 1 Peter 1.22, and we find this assurance and means of hope in time of exile. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Indeed, sincere brotherly love is also essential for us and our survival as elect exiles. Later, as Peter continues, he, be, he cites a passage in 1 Peter 1 from Isaiah chapter 40. He says, For all flesh is like grass, 1 Peter 1, 24, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, we cross-referenced that citation two weeks ago in Isaiah 40. The citation is specifically verses 6 and 8. But it is also helpful to note verse 7, which says, the means, declares the means by which the flesh and its glory will wither and fail. And that means is the breath of Almighty Holy God. That word in Hebrew is ruach. Ruach is the breath of God. It's also associated with the Spirit of God. It's also associated with wind. It's this idea of God appearing in His presence in manifest form often to reveal Himself by way of salvation and by way of judgment. The breath of God, the activity of God, His Spirit present to accomplish His holy will according to His perfect nature and character will cause the flesh to wither. This is encouraging for us in times like these. So let me give you a few applications that I believe are pertinent for our life even today, right now in the situation we find ourselves. First, sincere brotherly love is essential for the survival of the elect exile. Secondly, all flesh and its glory will wither. Thirdly, the breath, the ruach of the Lord is a withering force. And fourthly, we note in Scripture that the ruach of the Lord has destroyed the pride of empires in times past, even through plague, plague and pestilence. And now this is where I want to turn you to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus 10, I want you to notice the activity in this passage related to God's work in the plagues that He brought upon Egypt and the force that is evident in accomplishing this great wonder of our God. Verse 13, So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind. That would be our reference to Ruach this morning. The Lord brought a ruach upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor will ever be again. 
They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. No, therefore, forgive my, now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind, the Ruach, into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Fourth point this morning, the Ruach of the Lord has destroyed the pride of empires in the past, even through plague and pestilence. This morning, as I bring this message to you, it seems that circumstances are, I don't know, profound enough and in the consciousness of the whole world enough to draw a specific application from a text to grant ourselves perspective in a time of widespread fear. So today is what, March the 15th, is that correct? Uh, 2020, and the whole world is gripped by the fear of a coronavirus, it's a name of a pathogen, pandemic. And as we think about how vulnerable we are in times like these, I am thankful that the Lord will often use moments in history to remove the facade of self-security and idolatrous assurance and reveal to us once again, the world at large, how absolutely we are dependent upon Him not only for our eternal life, but for our next breath. It seems striking that the fear of this virus, even attacking the breath of man himself, uh, it seems striking as an analogy, a picture, an illustration of how we, in the words of Isaiah again, are dependent on every breath. We are dependent on the Lord. Do we recognize this as a people, as a people generally in this culture? Today has provided for us an opportunity to turn to the Lord. Now, you are going to face conversations, I'm sure you already have, that you sometimes don't have the opportunity to indulge. It seems to be on everybody's hearts and minds, fear for the future in light of the threat of this virus. Conversations like this could begin something like this, and I just give you a suggested lead-in. Isn't it amazing how quickly the hope and security we draw from our governments and our economy is threatened by the threat of a health pandemic? Isn't it amazing how quickly what we trusted in yesterday is gone today? And you can get almost everyone right now to agree with that statement I submit. You can continue. This is one of those times in history when we are presented with a particularly loud wake-up call. And the call is this. Where is absolute hope and security truly to be found? Is there hope of salvation even in death? And then we can pivot to the gospel, can we not? So I wanted to open with that to provide perspective, and it does relate to the rest of our message this morning. The rest of our message this morning, as you turn to Romans 4, will answer this question, what is our eternal hope? What message do we have to provide people in times of crisis like this when they are shaken for fear of their own survival? What hope can we grant them? Well, we can point them to the God who justifies. We read of the God who justifies in Romans chapter 4. So this is the message that I had prepared for you 
um, several weeks ago. So would you turn to Romans 4 with me today? In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. The aim of this morning's message, this sermon, is to reveal the essence of Abraham's hope and, consequently, the hope of his spiritual lineage. What is the essence of Abraham's hope? Now, we find, actually, first reference in Genesis 15, 6, at least most particularly. This is the famous, the first justification by faith alone passage in Scripture. Paul references this Scripture directly in Romans chapter 4, interprets and applies it, and points apostolically to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Abraham's hope, Abraham's hope. So this is the context of our message today. This is where hope lies. Would you rise as you're able out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word? And let us consider Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the holy word of our God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that, the right, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we are have a lot of things going on at once, it seems, and I apologize for a number of threads that I've opened up already today, but let me try to tie them together. We're in a Genesis series, and we've reached Genesis 15. And what I've chosen to do in the course of going through Genesis is to pause at times where there is a moment of redemptive historical or the history of salvation significance, and to note how future authors of Scripture reference it. Genesis 15:6 is one of these. So in Genesis 15, just to remind you, this was quoted in our text today, but in context in Genesis 15, we find the Lord visiting Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Abraham laments, verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So remember, verse 4, this is the direct revelation of the Lord himself. This is the word of God. This is God speaking directly to his servant. Quote, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. That is, the Lord brought Abram outside. What does he say? 
Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he, that is Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. That verse right there, 15.6, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness, is a bell of salvation's glory and salvation's substance, the essence of Abraham's hope, ringing through the course of all of history. And those vibrations are felt and amplified later by apostles who realized that Jesus Christ had fulfilled this very verse. He was the object. He was the one in whom ultimately all believers, including Abram, placed their hope. And that hope is the ground of their salvation. That faith that is granted them as a gift of God is the essence of their salvation. Nothing that man could accomplish, engineer, and do, and achieve by way of works will satisfy the justice of a holy God and the righteousness of a perfect, magnificent Lord of heaven and earth demanding perfection and all His beauty and holiness, only that which is supplied in Jesus Christ. Faith in the one who justifies is the ground and foundation of our hope. In the course of our Genesis series, we have taken time to catalog how future authors of Scripture recognize and expound the significance of watershed moments like these in the course of redemptive, covenantal, or salvation's history. And naturally, as we have reached Genesis 15 in our Old Testament study, we find cause to consider Romans 4 in some detail. In Paul's writings such as it is, as such as this, we find the declarative statement in Genesis 15:16 identifying the basis of Abram's righteousness. It is absolutely central to the gospel, this statement. As Paul visits the altar of Abram, if you will, he recognizes, affirms, and applies the priceless gem of gospel revelation, justification, or salvation by faith alone. However impressive the accomplishments and personality of Abram might be to us, Abraham might be to others, they are not impressive to God. The foundational appeal of the apostolic witness proclaiming hope of salvation for all time and in every era is the call to trust Him who justifies the ungodly. Hence the title of our sermon, Who Justifies? Who Justifies the Ungodly? We will find in Romans 4 as it continues, it is in fact Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. It is Yahweh in flesh, dying for our sins and rising for our justification, that is the basis of our eternal hope. For those like Abraham, who trust in the one who justifies the ungodly, their faith, not their works, is counted as righteousness. Our primary text today is an expansion of Paul's preface in Romans 3, 27 through 28 or 30 here. Notice in Romans 3, 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that no one, or that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is not the God of Gentiles also? Or is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now these phrases, these statements of the relationship of certain things, Paul expands in our text today. Our primary text is an expansion of Paul's preface in 327 through 30 
In these passages, we discover the relationship between faith and justification. Jew and Gentile, Abraham and his lineage, works in salvation. And all of this in the context of God's glory and the salvation of His people. Our text today is framed around several questions answered by covenant revelation to Abraham in Genesis 15.6, and these questions form our basic outline today. So here's a heading. Genesis 15.6 answers the following questions. We may not get to them all this morning, but mark them for future note, and we'll see how far we get. Genesis 15.6 answers these questions. Number one, a question of legacy. What was gained by Abraham? Paul raises that question in 4.1. Secondly, it's a question of authority. What does the Scripture say? Thirdly, a question of privilege. Blessing then only, uh, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Paul asks in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Who is privileged, in other words, to receive the blessing? And number four, a question of means. How then was it accounted or was it counted to him? That would be in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? That is, Abraham's righteousness. So Genesis 15, 6 that simple phrase, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul uh, goes on to declare, Paul, his thesis is that that statement answers four questions. What was gained by Abraham? Legacy. Authority, what does the Scripture say? Privilege, who is uh, given the favor of the Lord that results in our salvation and means what instrument does He use to save us? So that's our basic outline today. First of all, Paul recognized that Genesis 15:6 answers the question of legacy, what was gained by Abraham? Again, Romans 4:1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Notice that phrase according to the flesh. This is the context by which we answer the question, what is the legacy of Abraham? Well, when you consider Abraham as a mere man, his legacy is no better, no more virtuous than ours, at least in affecting our eternal hope and salvation. Paul is recognizing the limitations of our forefather. Though he is a significant son by type, he is not the significant son who will come. Young people, who is the significant son that Abram points to? Young people, kids? Jesus, He is the significant Son. There are two significant sons that Abram refers to that anticipate the Messiah. The first is Abram. He's witness number one. The second is David. He also testified of faith in the God who justifies. But here in Abram's case, we find that he was not a forefather who had messianic power to save, but a forefather according to the flesh. Paul recognized the limitations of Abraham. However venerated, that is, respected, elevated, put on a pedestal, he may have been in the mind of a zealous Jew or anybody for that matter. He is nevertheless our forefather according to the flesh as far as as his person and accomplishments hold out hope for our salvation. This concept is similar to the federal headship of Adam. Can anyone be saved by trusting in the work of Adam? No. And it's far worse than that, in fact. Adam, in his failure to uphold the terms of the covenant, brought the blood poisoning of sin into the entire human race. 
Ultimately, Adam is our forefather in a long line of forefathers according to the flesh. If it was up to humanity and its legacy and lineage and best efforts to secure hope for the future, we are, we, we are of all people, or we should despair more than any, anything else. We have absolutely nothing to base a credible hope on within the lineage of mere human generation. So similar to the federal headship of Adam, the legacy of Abram is one of mere flesh in and of himself. He is a progenitor, humanly speaking, that does not have the keys of salvation. In fact, he himself trusted another. Another way to say this, considering Abraham's legacy in terms of his humanity and achievements, <clears throat> he is our forefather according to the flesh. So what was gained by Abraham? What is his legacy? Well, when we consider it in terms of his humanity, it was nothing that helps us. When we consider it in light of his works or his achievements, it was an utter failure. We need not look much farther than the record, the biographical record of Abraham to realize this, right? Already we've covered how out of fear, Abram runs away from the promised area of God's protection and seeks refuge in Egypt. And then he begins to spin a yarn that his wife is his sister so that he can protect her, both presumably himself and her, from being taken forcibly as the wife of a powerful, influential leader in Egypt like Pharaoh or something of that sort. This isn't the only time Abraham does this. That is to say, he, in not trusting the covenant of God, he places the covenant of marriage at peril as well. Abraham, in these instances, was a weak and frail leader. He was not the paragon of virtue. He was not the Messiah. He was not the ultimate standard or example and the consistency of his testimony of one who could save us. In these examples and others, we recognize his limitations. He is merely our forefather according to the flesh. So what should we say then, Paul says? What was gained by Abram? Well, Abraham's legacy does not turn on his works or his achievements. It says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, the legacy of Abram, what was gained by him, has nothing to do with his own works. And the reason for this is the glory implications of the thing. In other words, if we are saved according to Abram's works, or if Abram was saved according to his works, he would have grounds to boast or to glory in achieving something of merit and something of a, a powerful value on into the eternal future. Think of this. If you are comparing notes or swapping stories or sitting around a campfire or just in casual conversation with a friend, you can impress someone if you match or exceed their own achievements in something. So this is very common, right? In conversation, someone says, you know, years ago I was able to do X. And that's funny, I heard of a guy and it's almost a kind of a human nature impulse to come up with a similar or maybe even a little better story. And that's what, why do we do that? It's because we can impress someone by matching or increasing or exceeding something that they've accomplished. So as far as man goes, if we are looking for ways to boast to our fellow uh, humans, we can come up with any number of things. You know, competition and sporting events and anything else, all of life or much of life hinges upon these kinds of pursuits. But the real and ultimate and most important question isn't if do we have something to boast about when compared to man. It's this, can we match or exceed the standard 
of what God can accomplish. If we stand before God and we claim that our own law-keeping ought to justify us in His presence, what we are doing is absolutely presumptuous, indeed blasphemous. We are saying, I am as holy and as righteous as you. Therefore, I deserve your respect. I deserve your favor. I deserve your welcome. I deserve your presence. When we think of it that way, we realize how blasphemous and presumptuous it is to trust in anything less than the perfect life, righteousness, obedience, and sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior. The Lord says, in order to be in my presence, to be in my favor, you must be holy as I am holy, and there is no way that anyone in the right frame of mind could rightly stand before the Lord and claim, I am holy as you are holy. Our only hope to stand in the Lord's presence without being uh, removed in His judgment and His just wrath is to plead the righteousness of another. Who is the one who justifies? Not Abraham, not David, not ourselves. Abraham, David, and all believers place their faith in the God who justifies. They place their faith in Jesus Christ. A little anticipation of the close of Paul's argument in this chapter, we move forward, kind of skip ahead to verse 24. Jesus, our Lord, at the end of that verse, is the object of Abram's faith in all true believers. It was He, He says, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, verse 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us, that is, we will be counted as righteous, as righteous if we believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Hence, we gather in this place not to glorify ourselves, not to boast among ourselves of our own merits, our own glory in any way, but we gather in this place to worship and extol the one who died in our place and was raised for our justification. We praise, we worship, we bow before Jesus Christ. He is the one who has granted us audience in the Father. And faith in His work, faith in His virtues, faith in His work on Calvary alone is the basis of our hope as it was the basis of Abraham's. Now we could try, but we will fail by other means. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. In other words, if one were to work uh, for his salvation... Paul recognizes that this is a category error. In other words, salvation is a gift, it is grace. But if you presume to acquire it by working, no, that's not a gift, that's not grace, that's a wage. So Paul says, if you assume that salvation can be secured by your own efforts, you don't understand the nature of salvation in the first place. A gift is never earned. Grace is never merited according to works. A gift is granted not because you deserve it, but in, or grace is granted not because you deserve it, but in spite of what you deserve. Mercy and grace both hinge upon this reality. So Paul is saying, understand the nature of salvation itself. To the one who works his wages, they're not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So again... What is the essence of Abram's hope and the hope of his spiritual lineage? All who trust in in, uh, Christ alone, the essence of our hope is trusting in him who justifies 
the ungodly. It is this faith that is counted as righteousness. And so this is the legacy of Abraham, a testimony of one who is justified by faith. The testimony of one who is counted righteous because he believed in the promises in the Word of God. And this is our testimony, too, if you are a true believer. And this is the hope that we hold out to a world that sometimes, by God's grace, is frantic, realizing how vulnerable they really are. The only hope to survive the coronavirus or any other threat is to place faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. Ultimately speaking, that is where true hope resides. Second major question this morning, Paul recognizes in Genesis 15, 6, that this, this question is answered too. It's a question of authority. What does the Scripture say? Verse 2, or verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here, Paul appeals to God's spoken word. As we quoted, or as we read in Genesis 15 earlier, the context of this message to Abraham is one of vision. The Lord comes to Abram in a vision and says, Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is the context of the word of the Lord to our forebearer, our forefather. It came by way of a declaration, a revelation, uh, proclaiming the truth that God will protect us from our greatest enemies, shield, and that God will secure our eternal hope, reward. This is something that the Scriptures say, not just the record in the Word as we read it, but indeed the record in the Word of the voice of God delivered to Abram by direct revelation, special revelation in this vision. And Paul's point is made only stronger, and we will see this in the future, when we see the seriousness of God's covenant promises to His servant Abram underscored by the covenant ceremony in the following verses, Genesis 15, 7, and this is where the rams uh, and the pigeon, turtle dove, and so forth, the heifer, are split, and there's a lot of significance here. Ultimately, suffice it to say for now, that this kind of ceremony invokes a certain self-harm oath. Uh, the technical term is self-maledictory oath. It is to say that if I do not keep my promises, may I be subject to the calamity that has fallen upon these animals. So God is saying that I, was, I will keep my promises, and if I break them, may I be like this heifer that's cut in two. It's extremely dramatic language. But it's meant to emphasize the seriousness and the absolute certainty of God's covenant. And this is the authority to which Paul appeals when he says, does not the, or for what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he believed a God who swore by himself, by self-maledictory or self-harm oath, that he would accomplish every bit of what was necessary for the essence of Abram's hope and the hope of all Abram's spiritual lineage to be secured. Why? Because he is the one who justifies the ungodly. So Paul appeals to his first witness and the Scriptures by citing Genesis 15, 6. Turn with me to Psalm 32. This was our worship passage today, and it is also Paul's second witness, if you will. Paul turns to another significant son. Hey, uh, young people, who is the significant son that until Jesus was Israel's greatest king? Who is Israel's greatest king, kids, before Jesus came? 
David, I will accept that. I, I think you are correct. David wrote more scripture than any other king, earthly king, and many of his scripture took the form of psalms of worship. Psalm 32 is a penitent psalm, meaning a psalm of repentance, seeking forgiveness from God Almighty. And though David was a significant son with a privileged position, indeed one of authority, as we mentioned last week from another psalm of David, Psalm 101, he bowed before a higher authority still. And he trusted this authority not only to judge, not only to hold him accountable for how he ruled his nation, but also to satisfy the payment necessary for his sins to be forgiven. 32.1, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then, to move it from the abstract, the third person, to make it personal. Verse 3, David speaks in the first person, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When he was silent, the conviction of the Lord, this sense of the judgment his sin deserved, weighed so heavy upon him that he said it sapped him of his very strength. He speaks in these poetic terms, describing as much. But then in verse 5, there's a shift in the countenance and confession of David. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So now we realize as we read this why Paul cites David as his second witness that in spite of David in his privileged position as king, he nevertheless was one who did not trust his own work and position to secure hope for him, but trusted him who justifies the ungodly. And David was profoundly aware upon the word of God coming to him through the prophet Nathan of his own sin. You guys remember the prophet Nathan? He tells David a story about a guy who had one precious little sheep, and then a man who had flocks and flocks came and stole that sheep because he didn't want to kill any of his own lambs. And then he fed it to his guests at dinner. Young people, you remember that story? And David is so upset, he says, that man should be taken out and hanged in so many words. He should be destroyed, and he should be judged for that wicked act. And Nathan says, you, O king, are the man. He explains to him by that illustration how David abused his position of authority to arrange the circumstances to kill Uriah, the husband of the woman whom he lusted after Bathsheba, and then through breaking all, virtually all the Ten Commandments to secure for himself that man's wife, thou shalt not covet, the Word of God had told us. What other commandments, uh, kids, did David break in that act? Let's do a little second commandment test. When David took Bathsheba as his wife, and killed Uriah in the process. What commandments did he break? Shout them out. What are the Ten Commandments did David break? Thou shalt not murder. murder. That's correct. What's another one? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, one more. David stole Uriah's wife. David murdered Uriah. How about adultery? Thou shalt not commit adultery shall not take for yourself the wife of another, basically. David did that as well. He coveted his neighbor's possession. You see, and in so doing, I submit, in some sense, he placed himself as a God before the Lord and his position 
uh, and so in breaking the first commandment and so forth. And as you go down the list, you find that by the standard of God's law, David knew by the message of the prophet that he indeed was a sinner. So what did he do? He cried out to the God who justifies the ungodly, did not seek to justify himself, did not seek to use his position for false security. He did not seek to look to false gods or to escape mechanisms, to distractions of modern life at that time, to uh, assuage his guilt and to remove from him this sense of accountability for his actions. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then there's this sigh of relief. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So this question of authority, um, David or uh, Paul appeals to for, uh, prior scripture, inciting two witnesses, Abram, Abraham, and David, in making the case that the scriptures say, through the testimony of the significant sons of old, by the word of God Himself, through His prophet Nathan, in one case by direct revelation to Abram, in the other, that the way of salvation is paved upon the death of another, God's Provision for salvation comes from His hand and His work alone, and those who trust in the God who justifies the ungodly will be saved. Quick note, this is the unified testimony of all of Scripture. Can we not learn this from these passages that we've studied today? Only say this to prepare you for the naysayers, objections that arise. People hate the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Many do. People hate Paul's message that it's not your works that save you, but God gets all the glory. It is the sovereignty of the Lord and salvation that is emphasized consistently in Paul's testimony. So people try to pit Paul against other authors of Scripture. They try to cite other, path, other uh, sources of authority. You'll sometimes hear Second Temple Judaism uh, appealed to, to recast the idea of a firm belief in forensic justification. That means by the declaration of God sovereignly alone, we are made righteous. Or you sometimes will hear an appeal to um, a higher critical scholarship, which is studying the Scriptures independent of the Scriptures' own testimony, and smuggling in another authority, like whatever the trends are in the scholastic world and people who set themselves as a judge over Scripture. And what people do when they reject the clear and consistent and unified testimony of Scripture in these instances is they bow before another God, another authority. And Paul teaches us where to uh, place uh, the authority. He teaches us where to recognize that the uh, absolute certainty of what we read. It is in the unified testimony of Scripture from Abram, from Abraham to David to Paul to the apostles to Christ himself. It is the testimony of all of the Scripture that the just shall live by faith, that justification is by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone. And those who are saved, those who share in Abraham's hope, place faith in the God who justifies. Third point this morning, a question of privilege. Paul recognizes that Genesis 15, 6 answers this question of privilege that we see in verse 9 of Romans 4. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as, righteous, as righteousness. So Paul is asking this question, who is privileged to receive the favor of the Lord? Or put another way, the saved ones, the elect, the people of God are distinguished according to what? 
The people of God are distinguished according to what unifying principle? What is the essence of our hope? Again, aim of this message, reveal the essence of Abraham and all his spiritual lineage, their hope. What is the essence of our hope that binds us? What is it that distinguishes us to be the people of God? Is it an outward sign like circumcision? Is it an external affiliation like an ethnic identity being born of the physical, literal seed of Abraham? And Paul is saying, no. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? He answers his own question, does he not? As we see in verse 11, the second half, he says, uh, the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still, or this, uh, he speaks of Abraham's righteousness as the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And then he goes on in verse 11, Oh, at the beginning of verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In verse 12, and to make him, this was counted to them as well, to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, uh, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This makes him the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And that's uh, the second portion of 11b there. So just citing some references, we see that this question of privilege is according to those who are distinguished by the unifying principle of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. By extension, we can say there are no options in the flesh that unify us or that set us apart, or give us the identity of the people of God. They ultimately, the people of God are not unified by their culture, not unified by their works, by their efforts, by their ethnicity, by their national identity. All these things may have been tempting substitutes at the time when Paul was writing. No, they're unified by this principle, the gospel at its root and base level, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, trusting Him who justifies the ungodly. This is why you can have sweet fellowship with a saint you've never met before, don't even know their physical language, all the way on the other side of the world. This is why you will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and perhaps you will be sitting next to someone who was born in the 1300s. Perhaps you will sit down next to Melchizedek himself, a figure in Old Testament Scripture that we've read of at that great marriage celebration supper of the Lamb. And the unifying bond of all the people of God who are called out from other lesser identities, tribe, tongue, nation, historical era, the unifying principle that binds them all is their faith in Jesus Christ. If we are all looking to Him who was crucified for us, we all have solidarity and hope and identity as the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted into the family of the Almighty God, and we will go to the same place we have the same Father. We have the same vocational calling, ultimately, to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We have the same vocational calling, provisionally, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations, according to Matthew 28. We have so much in common. This is very important, you guys. We live in an era, a time, where people are easily confused and deluded. There's other identities that people put forward. And I, I, I fear, because many times... The, uh, there are certain lesser things that are emphasized, I believe, at the cost of what truly binds us. 
the social gospel by way of example, or people uh, getting back to their ethnic identity, and we hear these terms of white majoritarian privilege or identity politics and so on and so forth. Remember, in the quagmire of confusion that we find ourselves in, you have absolute solidarity and essential unity with those who are distinguished according to the principle of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If that's your confession, you are my brother and sister, you are, or sister, my family member. You and I will join in the glorious call of a forever future, worshiping together as the redeemed forever and without end. Now, this also speaks to the prophecy in Genesis 12, that the hope of Abraham would be an international light. Do you guys remember this? What was that? Some of these first covenant promises that came to Abraham in Genesis 12, where God begins to reveal to his servant what he will accomplish through him and his lineage. Now the Lord said to Abraham 12.1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've also read that this is an echo of a prophecy by Noah where his son Japheth or his son Shem representing the covenant line and the privileged sons and the significant sons if you will the tents of Shem will one day invite in the tents of Japheth, which represent the outlying coastland regions. And thus Ham, Japheth, and Shem will be unified, a people of each, if you will, and all the nations that come forth from that dispersion there in a Babel and so forth, all the nations will be unified. And this began to happen, and uh, this began to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came at the day of Pentecost, and the gospel went forth in multilingual fashion as a light to the nations. So this question of privilege, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we find the answer that this blessing is for both Jew and Gentile. This blessing indeed will go forth to all nations and the light of hope in Jesus Christ will ransom from every corner of this world a people. I think we have time for our last point this morning, if you have patience. Our heading again, Paul recognized Genesis 15.6 answers the following questions. We've covered the question of legacy, <coughs> what was gained by Abraham, question of authority, what do the Scriptures say, question of privilege, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? The final question is a question of means. What is or how then was it counted to him? You could also say instrument. What is the means of salvation? Or in classical Reformed language theology, what is the instrument of of justification. Paul says in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Then verse 20 or verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Paul's point is this, how was Abraham's faith counted to him or how was what was the order of progression here? Was it by virtue of the sign or by virtue of faith that Abraham was deemed righteous? And the answer is, it was by virtue not of the external, not of the work, not of the sign, but by virtue of faith. It was not after, but before he was circumcised, Paul says. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal 
of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So we see here Paul distinguishing between the sign and the thing signified. Circumcision did not save. It was a sign of something substantial and internal. And that's why the sovereign order of Abraham's calling forth began with his confession of faith and declaration of righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, and then proceeded to covenant sign later. So important, extremely important. It has immediate application for our day. Why? Because we still struggle in certain religious conceptions with the distinction that's provided here in Scripture and is absolutely necessary to understand the context. There is a difference between that which God substantially accomplishes it and that which we look to to remind us of that, as in the case of the Lord's Supper, Supper to remember and to proclaim, or in the case of baptism, to inaugurate us publicly into, uh, by our confession and by that event into the church of Jesus Christ. And so you could raise this question, does baptism save you? Does communion transfer by some magical ability the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ? That's a doctrine in Roman Catholicism called transubstantiation. Also, baptism is a sacrament in Roman Catholicism that confers salvation. In other words, if you ask the question, what is the instrument of justification on Catholicism? It's two things. In their teaching, it is, or in their uh, doctrine, the instrument of justification is baptism and penance. That is, Roman Catholicism literally holds that salvation is conferred, it's infused to you. Righteousness is infused to you by way of communicated grace through the act of baptism. And then if that infused grace is compromised by your works, then it is purified again through the sacrament of penance. What does this do? It introduces works into the assurance of your salvation. And it violates the principles here of Scripture revealed to us and also confuses the sign and the thing signified. So in praying for and ministering to, indeed witnessing to, those who are lost as a result of the Catholic delusion, point to Romans chapter 4 and show how it was before Abraham was circumcised that he had the assurance of his righteousness, and that was by faith alone. You see, it's a question of sufficiency. Catholicism says that God's grace is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It, is, uh, it must be, uh, there are cooperative acts or works that must attend it, namely a certain standard of holy living, and if you fall short, penance and so forth. Grace is necessary, but not sufficient. In Paul's teaching and the teaching of the true gospel, grace is sufficient. It is grace alone. Now, it is attended by works as fruit, but that works are not the root. They are the result, the effect, the fruit of our salvation. So Paul addresses this question of means. How then was it counted to him? Was Abraham's righteousness counted to him because of the covenant outward sign, circumcision? No, it was counted to him because of faith. Was Abraham's righteousness counted to him because of his impeccable record of perfect holiness? He was a man of upstanding citizenship and integrity? No, it was counted to him because he placed faith in the God who justifies the ungodly. So in conclusion this morning, who justifies? Do we? Does the church? Does a sign? Does a method? Does a formula? Does a program? No. God alone justifies. As we 
turn to the end of Romans 4, let me remind you of Paul's concluding words in this section. And I'll start in verse 20. No distrust, speaking of Abraham, made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer. Father, as we have reacquainted our souls this morning in the reading and proclamation of your holy word, with the ground of true justifying hope, with the basis and the essence of Abraham's hope in our own as the spiritual lineage of our forefathers in the faith, we thank you that we can be assured of our salvation, not because of our works and righteousness, but because Jesus died in our place. We place our faith in him. We repent of our own works. We repent of trusting in, placing hope in, or being tempted by other promises of hope for the future. May we reject them all and instead believe and proclaim that Jesus is our Lord, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And by his work, we are justified. We are justified by faith in what he has done and because of his glorious magnificent accomplishment in redemption on Calvary. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this is a message that the world is dying in their sins for want of hearing and heeding. I pray that as circumstances unfold according to your providence and sovereignty, that you might open and soften hearts to the message of hope in Christ alone. Would you equip your church, Father, to unequivocally, boldly, and without apology declare that only God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, who came in flesh and died in our place, was resurrected, ascended, rules, reigns, is our intercessor standing between, pleading His own broken body that, uh, uh, for the payment of our sins, that we might have access to the throne room of God's holiness. May we, Lord, be faithful to proclaim this message. And may this message go forth, Lord, and draw the lost unto repentance and faith. Thank you, Lord, that you have broken down the walls of our own unbelief, that you have brought the conviction of those believers in the hearing of this message of their own sin, and that they have repented. For them, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve and encourage us, and let us tell more of the connections in your Holy Scripture of the truth of what happened to us, that we might be excited, motivated, and equipped to share this hope with others. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.